I'm Pastor Mike Winger, and this is Bible Thinker, the program dedicated to thinking biblically about everything. All right, welcome to the Tuesday live stream. Hey guys, uh, I am joined, as you can see, by four other guys, uh, three other guys, four if you include me as another guy, which doesn't make any sense. Uh, we're going to be doing a response today to genetically modified skeptic. Um, this is an atheist who has put out a video for things that could make you an atheist, for questions that could make you an atheist. And we think that these questions shouldn't make you an atheist. In fact, if you really think them through, some of them seem to me to actually make it more likely that you should be a Christian. So um, this is a guy, a genetically modified skeptic, who's a very popular atheist YouTuber. We're not against him personally. We're not attacking him personally. We care about him. We realize that he's gone through real struggles. His path to atheism, you know, has been like a real journey. Um, but at the same time, uh, he's an atheist who's giving out propaganda that leads people into an intellectual darkness about God. And he's really promoting his atheism. He's an evangelical atheist. And so we'd like to respond to that content for the sake of his viewers. And so this is a, we care about him, but we're going to disagree with him very openly and strongly on this issues, on these issues. So uh, we're going to dig right into it. What we're going to do is play clips from his videos, and I'm going to have each of these guys right here respond. Uh, this is Braxton Hunter from um, Trinity Radio, his YouTube channel. He's an apologist. We have Cameron Bertuzzi. He is also an apologist, a Christian who cares about the truth of Christianity. And he has Capturing Christianity, his YouTube channel. And we've got John McRae from What Do You Meme? He's also an apologist. And they each have different flavors. Part of my goal here is that you guys would be introduced to these guys and their YouTube channels. I'll tell you more about them. But first, let's uh, give them a chance to share something that might benefit you, might bless you. We're going to play clips now from Genetically Modified Skeptics video. And Braxton will be the first up to respond. So Braxton, you ready to go? I'm ready, Mike. All right, so uh, here we go. Why did God communicate through literature? This one goes to anyone who thinks any piece of literature is the word of a tri-omni-God. Literature, by its very nature, demands interpretation. Intelligent people can read the same passage with the same good intentions and still come away with very different interpretations of its meaning. We are flawed beings with abilities of perception limited to the subjective alone. Communication through literature always leads to varying understandings of that literature. If God authored a piece of literature, then that means that literature has an intended meaning, but that humans are bound to interpret it in differing ways, many of them missing the intended meaning. At first glance, this seems to only reveal a flaw in human nature, but upon deeper consideration, it reveals flaws in any authoring tri-omni-gods. As I'm sure you know, countless sects of Christianity, Islam, and Judaism exist, varying wildly in practice, often due to differing interpretations of holy texts. This inarguably leads to suffering. War between various sects entirely aside, I'll give an example. Jehovah's Witnesses believe that the Bible forbids the ingestion of any blood, including life-saving blood transfusions. If they're right, that means that they're obeying God's will and won't be punished for violating it, while the majority of Christians who aren't JWs are further separated from God or even punished for not understanding the text. If JWs have themselves misunderstood the Bible, though, most Christians are just fine, while the JWs' misunderstanding of God's word has them dying preventable deaths. There are countless contradictory interpretations of any holy text out there, many leading to the kind of unnecessary suffering I mentioned. If God authored or inspired such a text, he either couldn't do any better, didn't know the suffering he would cause, or didn't care if suffering resulted. If he couldn't do better, communicating in a medium immune to misinterpretation, then he isn't omnipotent. If he didn't know the suffering he would cause, he's not omniscient. 
If he didn't care if suffering resulted, he's not omnibenevolent. Any way you cut it, you can't consider the author of such a text to be anything close to a triomni god. Of course, there's a reasonable explanation for the flawed nature of sacred texts. Maybe they were just written by human inspiration alone, and no god was ever involved. All right, uh, Braxton, you're going to take it away, man. Um, I I love this guy, Braxton Hunter, and he's got really, really great content. He's a careful thinker, loves the Lord, and represents Christ well online, and all those nice things I can say. I can't wait to hear what he's going to share about this. It better be good. <laughs> Thanks, Mike. I think he raises a really interesting question, but I think the first thing that has to be mentioned is that I understand that he specifies that he's specifically responding to the tri-omni God of the Abrahamic religions. But in spite of that, the title of the video is Four Weird Questions That Might Make You an Atheist. So in spite of all the caveats that Drew gives, if we gave him everything that I think he wants to make with this point, this isn't something that should lead you anywhere toward atheism, like at all. It shouldn't even necessarily lead you away from the God of Christianity, though it may just impact how you conceive of that God. Now, I personally worship the tri-omni God of Christianity, but I think that this point kind of takes the wind out of Drew's sails pretty early on. And, um, and I think it lowers the stakes of that dramatic language that's in that title there. Now, the way he thinks about it is pretty clever. By talking about how certain interpretations can lead to suffering, he kind of angles toward an argument from evil. You know, the idea of why would an all-powerful, all-loving, all-knowing God allow for pain and suffering when he could stop it? In fact, Drew even kind of structures his argument similar to the famous argument from the pre-Christian hedonist philosopher Epicurus. Epicurus thought that if you had certain of the omnis, then whence cometh evil, or why is there evil? And the way uh, Drew conceives of it as it relates to literature is God either couldn't do better than communicating through literature, in which case he's not omnipotent. He didn't know that it would result in suffering, in which case he's not omniscient. Or he knew those things but didn't care, in which case he's not omnibenevolent. Now, like the famous logical argument from evil credited to Epicurus, Drew's argument is far too ambitious. See, he phrases it as though those three options that he gives us are the only ones available. And this means that all one would have to do to defeat the claim is to posit a fourth option that might even possibly be true to defeat the claim that it must be one of these three that would do damage to these omni traits. But do we have something like a fourth option in addition to Drew's three? I think we do. Using written literature to communicate God's message to humanity is an overarching good in spite of suffering that results from wrong interpretations. Now, this is an internal examination of Christianity. And within Christian theology and Christian scripture, God communicates to people in several different ways. He uses prophets. He sometimes uses angelic messengers. Sometimes he uses dreams and visions. Sometimes he uses miracles. And sometimes he uses written text, written literature. But of these other options, they either must be also interpreted, which wouldn't get out of the problem Drew's trying to get out of, or are personal and subjective to only those people that experience them firsthand, or they don't give you, and this is so important, they don't give you that specific and detailed information that written literature would give you. And so despite that it would need to be interpreted, 
Written text allows for God's message to be preserved and properly analyzed by a number of people over the centuries who can look at it and interpret it. It also allows for people to take this specific and detailed message and share it throughout the world as they would want to do. But that's just getting started. There are also intrinsic goods that come from this method of communication that seem to be in line with God's goals for his people. Now, Drew's got a channel where it seems to me that he's presenting himself as someone who uh, appreciates the quest for knowledge and the search for truth, that that's kind of an intrinsically good thing. And um, the Bible, the study of the Bible and hermeneutics and investigating what the Bible says and what it means is a part of that quest for knowledge. It allows for that search for truth. And so it's an intrinsic good that comes through God communicating through written language like that. Also, the story of the Bible is one of relationship, and that's a good thing. God wants us to love him and to love our neighbors as ourselves. Mark 12, 30 through 31 and Matthew 22, 36 through 40. Written text is excellent for this relational aspect of Christianity. Individuals are able to share the message personally with others and then investigate it and study it together in community in that relational way. And the New Testament pictures the church as a body in 1 Corinthians 12, 12 and 1 Corinthians 12, 27. And if that descriptor means anything, no one member of the body, no one individual in the church has everything they need. They rely on each other. They function in community in this relational way. And so they study and investigate together. That cooperative relationship makes sense if it circles a text, a sacred text, of literature. It works for that community and that relationship. But if God were to somehow just snap his fingers and supernaturally give us everything in our brains in terms of biblical information and interpretation that we need, uh, it would take away these goods that are overarching goods that are a part of coming through uh, communication, coming through written text. So what are our options? God couldn't do better. God wasn't aware of another way to do it, that uh, wasn't aware of the suffering that would come or that he was aware of it, but just didn't care. Actually, there's a fourth option. And that fourth option is that written literature was the best means of communicating specific information that could then be studied in community. And that's how I'd answer that question from a genetically modified skeptic. Awesome. We're going to actually um, go to some of our kind of, we're going to dialogue on this topic a little bit here and kind of just think it through together in addition to the things that Braxton just shared. But before we do that, I just want to give a plug for Braxton's channel. Braxton's channel is um, Trinity Radio, right? On YouTube. Braxton, yes. yeah. And and <laughs> I have right. a link for it in the video description here. And I do recommend if you're interested in maybe the way Braxton kind of breaks things down, uh, he has a lot to offer for Christians and non-believers who are interested in thinking through reasons to follow Christ, man, reasons to evaluate and then see the goodness and the truth of Christianity. And so I have a link in the description for his channel. I do recommend you guys check it out. Um, but, uh, but yeah, so what do you guys think about um, this? You want to add anything to something Braxton said? John, you uh, yeah, ahead. I'll just add something real quick. So, um, <clears throat> oh, hey, thanks, man. <laughs> hey, um, so the thing that the first thing that kind of jumped into my mind, too, when I um, hear this type of objection is I think about like the Bible in is realistic. OK, so I think that the Bible really corresponds with reality. And when it talks about our sin nature, um, 
that I think plays a role into why there's a lot of different interpretations of stuff too. Now this, I'm not saying that this is an exhaustive explanation, but I think that it does have some explanatory power because we all have a tendency to want to read our own preferences or into the Bible, right? Or things that we like, or our theology or whatever. We read those into the scriptures a lot of the time. And so as long as we're sinners and as long as that we continue to do this stuff, that's always a real possibility. Um, but also we read in the Bible too, where we have to strive to enter into the narrow gate. And a lot of like striving to enter into the narrow gate is coming to understand correct um, theology. And so you have to actually work at it sometimes if you want to get to the truth. And like how Braxton said, that's a beautiful thing, right? Um, because then you're actually, um, you know, it kind of stops you too from getting into like a um, some sort of kind of like legalism and stuff like that as well too. But it actually, if you continue to strive to find the truth, then I think that it makes the relationship of Christ and stuff that much more rich. So. Yeah. No, so one of the things point. that one of the things that I noticed in the, the first question was basically he's, he's talking about like, why did God communicate through literature? But I think really what he's what he's doing is he's just basically talking about the problem of evil and he's focusing on one aspect of the problem of evil, which I actually just interviewed a philosopher about. But basically, I think that, well, actually, as I was listening to like him sort of lay out the argument, one of the things I noticed was he says that like, the way that God set it up, how you can sort of misinterpret scripture, you can misinterpret some written document. And what he what he mentions specifically is Jehovah's Witnesses, how the blood transfusions and how the the fact that they're misinterpreting scripture leads to the suffering. Well, what I noticed was that he used, he sort of, he first started out just saying that this was suffering. And then he started talking about how this was unnecessary suffering. The term that I like to use instead of unnecessary suffering is that it's unjustified. And so really what Drew would have to argue then would be to say, well, this misinterpretation causes suffering. I think we all agree with that, like this misinterpretation by the Jehovah's Witnesses led to suffering. But it's another question entirely whether or not that suffering was unjustified. And so I think what Braxton pointed out was there are good reasons to think that God would allow something like this, the, the good of getting in community and talking with other believers. And I mean, even what we're doing here tonight where, you know, our friendship between the four of us is sort of based on the Bible and Christianity and apologetics more broadly. But so what he's doing or what Braxton pointed out was that there's these goods that can be obtained here. And so basically what I'm, what I'm pointing out is that he didn't give an argument, Drew didn't give an argument that the suffering that he's talking about that he's pointing at basically is unjustified. He just sort of said that it was unnecessary, said that it was unjustified or implied that it was unjustified, but there wasn't really an argument in there for that conclusion. And so to me, it, it, that's one of the things that I like to point out is that when, when you're trying to develop an argument for a position, you've got to make sure that all of the premises actually lead to the conclusion that you're trying to get to. And then you've got to be able to, to defend those premises. And mm -hmm. basically all he did was give the conclusion of his argument. He didn't give the steps or defend any of the steps. Yeah. So, and you know what, this is, this is something you guys do a lot. And I try to do it too, is to try to take the thing that the, say the atheist or the person who's objecting to Christianity is saying and try to like get clarity on it. Like what is the real case that's right. being made here? Because it's a lot of these accusations against Christianity or whatever are, are sort of based on implications. But when you unpack the implications, you realize there's claims and they depend on certain things being true. And that's where it sort of can fall apart. Yeah. 
have one more quick thing, thing that I'll say real just quick. real quick. Oh, yeah, go ahead, John. John. You want me to go? Okay. Okay. Yeah, just real quick. I was just going to say, he says in there too how um, it's so unreliable if uh, God is going to communicate through text or something like that, right? Um, so if God's going to make a book through text or whatever, that's so unreliable. But I'd say as opposed to what, right? Um, I did a video in response to Matt Dillahunty actually when he was um, debating with Mike, Mike up here, Mike, <laughs> with Mike, on, yeah. and he said how um, Jesus could have came today and we could have had videos and all this other stuff too. And I won't recap that whole video here though, but um, just a long story short, it's basically like, I think that it would even be worse today. You know, if you have video, people manipulate video all the time, this and that. And if you go back to what we know about textual criticism with the Bible and the manuscripts and all that too, then we actually know with like an extreme high degree of confidence what the original manuscript said um, because we had so many manuscripts. So the, the reliability of the Bible as compared to say like a video or something like that is significantly higher. Yeah. Well, and to cap this off, Mike, if you don't mind, if I could just cap this off uh, yeah. this section here, uh, what I want to say is, you know, it's when we talk about a better way, a way that wouldn't um, allow for interpretive problems where we could get mixed up and, and give the wrong interpretation that could lead to suffering. Uh, you know, John just said something that I think was really powerful. What does that even look like? Because even if it were the case, I mean, forget video, forget that sort of thing. Even if it was the case that God could snap his fingers and suddenly all of that information seemed obvious to you, depending on how far you go with your skepticism, and there are people that go this far, depending on how far you go with your skepticism, you could still question that experience and question what was going on there. So I think that a detailed, and I don't want this to get lost in it, the detailed and specific information that can be given in written literature and preserved is so powerful. And that's not even to speak of our manuscript traditions. Yeah, I think so too. And, it, and I just, I'll point out real quick, the example he gives is the Jehovah's Witnesses and their beliefs on blood transfusions comes from the Watchtower, not the Bible. I mean, this is the actual history of it. it, it and they used to think blood transfusions were okay. And then they said they weren't okay. But this is based on Watchtower proclamations, not on scripture. They hijack the scripture to try to support this, but it's not, this is not a confusion about the Bible. This is a human flaw taken to be a flaw in the text. But, um, all right, we'll go to the, we'll go to do the we, next do one. Do we have time uh, for one more thing? Yeah, if it's from you. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Mike. No, I, I did want to point one, one quick thing out, and I think it's important to point this out too. What I like to do is when someone, when I hear an objection from an atheist, I like to like write out the whole transcript of what they actually say and then look at the actual text and analyze it that way. And so what I did was I took his last statement in this question where it says, if God couldn't communicate through a medium immune to misinterpretation, he's not omnipotent. We can actually agree with that. If he didn't know the suffering it would cause, he's not omniscient. We can agree with that. If he didn't care what suffering would result, he's not omnibenevolent. All of us can agree with three, those three statements, but nothing follows from that. And mm -hmm. I think that's another thing that Braxton was pointing out. It's like... It, we, we're not assuming or no, we're not granting that God doesn't care about the suffering. Just because you allow suffering doesn't mean that you don't care about the suffering. Like I allow my kids to suffer mm -hmm. because I love them. Actually, my son went through conjunctivitis recently and I had to like force his eyes open and put antibacterial drops in his eyes and I caused him to suffer. But that doesn't mean that I didn't care about the suffering. Like I cared about the suffering that I was putting him through. Mm -hmm. So I think that's something to, to keep in mind. Right on. All right. Well, we're going to get into the second question. Remember, there's four questions in this video that are offered. And I want you guys to be thinking this through. Like, he's offering these as reasons to become an atheist. That's a pretty big thing, right? But when you really unpack them, uh, 
they don't really work that way. So here's the second one, and we're going to listen to it in its in its fullness, and then I'll respond. And I probably did way too much research responding to this question, but hopefully it'll bless somebody. <laughs> Shouldn't you worship the cruelest god imaginable? This is for fans of Pascal's Wager, which is a pragmatic, not evidential argument for belief in God over disbelief. Just for review, the argument goes, if God doesn't exist, a believer suffers only a finite loss in death. But if he does exist, a believer enjoys an infinite gain in heaven. Meanwhile, if a person does not believe or act as if God exists and they're right, they stand to gain just finite luxuries on earth. But if they're wrong, they stand to suffer infinitely in hell. Therefore, a rational person would seek to believe in God and live as if he exists. Obviously, there's a false dichotomy here between the existence of a very specific God and the non-existence of God, but let's explore the logic of this argument and see where it leads. Within the reasoning of this argument, the objectives of belief and worship are to gain pleasure and avoid pain. The argument is purely an evaluation of risk considering, well, rather arbitrarily chosen supernatural factors. There is a way to make this argument more powerful pragmatically, though, and it's through the consideration of slightly different factors. Instead of creating a false dichotomy between one of the many popular concepts of a god and the non-existence of god, why not create a true dichotomy between belief in a god with the best imaginable reward for believers and the worst imaginable punishment for doubters and every other religious position? Why not invent a god who is as cruel as can possibly be imagined to doubters in order to do away with the false dichotomy and make the wager more persuasive? See, if you believe in and worship the definitionally cruelest god and you're right, you'll get to go to heaven. But if you're wrong, you won't go to the worst hell imaginable. You'll go to, at worst, a lesser hell. If you don't believe in the definitionally cruelest god and you're right, you'll either go to a lesser heaven, a lesser hell, maybe you'll be reincarnated, or maybe you'll go nowhere at all. But if you're wrong, you'll go to the worst hell imaginable. So, a reasonable person must believe in and worship the cruelest imaginable god. This argument uses the same logic as Pascal's wager and arguably even improves upon it by eliminating the false dichotomy. So if you're an advocate for Pascal's wager, being unconcerned with evidential arguments and more concerned with evaluating any conceivable risk, you should argue for the worship of the god specifically crafted for this wager, the god of Pascalianism. Or, you know, you could realize that arguments like this, which are entirely unconcerned with the basis of their premises, fail to make any valuable point. All right. Um, so, wham, take that, <laughs> Christianity. Um, let me let me offer, oh. I think, three major problems uh, that I see with this, with this, the whole thing. It's really confused on some really important levels. So the first problem is this. Uh, Drew seems to misunderstand Pascal's wager. And... I don't want to totally blame Drew for this. I mean, he has some accountability because he's making videos for, you know, many thousands of people for it. So he has accountability to do his homework on it. But um, but it's true that a lot of skeptics, atheists, misrepresent this constantly. And it's even misrepresented among some Christian sources. So I understand the confusion. But if you dig a little deeper other than the pop level conversation on it, you actually go and read like the Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy's entry on Pascal's Wager or read some papers on it or look at some of the thoughtful presentations of it, it'll totally dispel this confusion. Um, I will say though, first, Christianity doesn't stand or fall on Pascal's wager, uh, but it is a lot better than atheists think it is. And Drew has given the weakest possible version of this wager here. And when you take the weakest possible idea and you want to refute that, and then 
you know, it's it's just um, it's almost like a game that's being played instead of real thinking that's happening. So what is Pascal's wager actually? Uh, well, Pascal had multiple wagers. The guy died before publishing his wager and people just looked at his notes afterwards and they were like, oh, look, he was taking notes. He had like at least three different versions of his wager telling people why they should believe in God, even if they weren't sure about it. And um, we just kind of put those notes together. It was incomplete. Skeptics who were online, though, they never even interact with Pascal's actual wager. They interact with their version of it. So it's it's kind of like the skeptic's version of Pascal's wager that they're refuting. And their version, which Drew interacts with, is believe whatever claims promise the most. That's that's his version, right? So, oh, well, I'll just promise an even better heaven and an even worse hell. And then you're supposed to believe that made up religion. And that's really weird. And we can all see off the cuff, like, yeah, don't do that. If he's right about Pascal's wager, then Pascal's wager is wrong. Um, but this is his weird version of it. Pascal's wa wager is more about a dis decision theory thing. In fact, Pascal, brilliant man, he's the father of modern day decision theory. This is like what economics is actually based on. So this is, it's profound. It's thoughtful. It's not, you know, the way it's presented by um, skeptics online. So modern proponents of Pascal's wager, they take Pascal's work and they try to develop it even further, um, are people like Michael Rhoda. Michael Rhoda, in his book, Taking Pascal's Wager, he basically says this, look, you, if, if you're stuck in the middle, if you're like, it's 50-50, Christianity's true or not, or say God might exist or not, it's 50-50, I'm not sure what to do. He then argues, well, the best thing if you're on the fence is to wager for God and start living in ways that would help you seek God, help you discover the truth of God, help you experience God, um, and acting in ways as though God is real so that you would have the best possible outcome. You know, better to have heaven um, than hell you know, on this wager. So Christianity offers something, whereas atheism offers nothing or relatively nothing compared to the eternal, you know, infinite value of heaven. Um, now, this helps people who think they need absolute certainty to sort of break away from the idea that you have to like have 100% proof of something before you can believe it. Uh, Pascal's wager is saying, hey, even if you're a little on the fence, you should wager for God. Uh, then what Michael Rota does is he then goes into an evidential case for why Christianity would be true as opposed to just any belief in God. That's very important. That's part of his wager. And it was part of Pascal's wager too. Pascal offered a case for Christianity, then concluded that he was, he was uh, indecisive between Christianity and atheism, and then, he, and then he brought his wager. So the wager was brought after evidence was brought. It wasn't the wager is brought in spite of evidence. That's really important. Liz Jackson is another uh, person who uh, has dealt, she co-authored a paper on Pascal's wager, and she offers another version of it saying that even if you're not 50-50, even if it's a really low percentage, you should still wager for God. And she offers her whole case for that and does it very thoroughly, very thoughtfully. And it has to do with the infinite value, infinite value concept versus um, the uh, the not infinite value. Anyway, I, I won't get into that in full detail, but I will put a link in the description after this live stream is over to an interview with Liz Jackson and a playlist on Pascal's Wager that you guys might be interested in from Crash Course um, Apologetics that I thought was really good. Either way, though, whether you take Pascal, Michael Rota, Liz Jackson, you take any case, there's an evidential evaluation to help bring up the, the probability or the chances that Christianity is true in every one of these cases. This is what they all have in common. And this is what Drew completely ignores. And that's why his sort of um, off-the-cuff, angry, cruel God becomes sensical or he thinks it represents Pascal's wager. It just doesn't. So they want to show that there's at least some likelihood that God exists to show that Christianity is more likely true than other religions and then to bring in Pascal's wager to help you make that decision even if you're not totally sure. 
So that that's kind of the main focus of Pascal's wager. That's my first complaint against Drew is it misses. It's, it's not the wager. It's something else. Um, he also talks about a false dichotomy. He assumes that the issue is Christianity versus atheism and that we're arbitrarily ignoring other theisms here. Uh, but Pascal's wager can be constructed in a couple different ways. You know, you want to meet people where they're at. That's the idea with Pascal's wager. You could say, hey, look, if you're stuck between belief in God or not belief in God, Pascal's wager is saying, you know, you may as well live like God exists because the consequences are so grand rather than living like he doesn't exist. If you're not sure, you should fall on the side of God existing. It's like if you're at a crossroad and you're like, well, if I turn left, I might horribly die. And if I turn right, I might live a wonderful life. I'm not sure which way to turn. I think I'll go ahead and turn right. That's that's the idea. It's going to help you make that decision. Um, now, when would it be a case between just Christianity and atheism? When would that not be a false dichotomy? When could you elevate Pascal's wager to say, hey, I don't just want you to decide between God and not God. I want you to say Christianity versus atheism. Um, I think that that would be a personal thing. It'd be like, hey, if your personal alternative to atheism is Christianity, if you're in that place where you think, well, Christianity is the most likely of all the religions and the alternative to me is atheism. And I think a lot of atheists are there. I've heard stories of atheists who, upon discovering that they think Christianity is not true, mistakenly thinking it's not true, they just become atheists because that is their dichotomy. So you're meeting them where they're at and you're telling them to wager for Christianity. Or if you think that you can then look at the variety of faiths, here's another way to get that as a true dichotomy, Christianity, atheism, is you look at the variety of faiths. You look at Islam and you look at all the faiths that have like an eternal value proposition. You know, Buddhism wouldn't count here. Um, Hinduism, most, lots of forms of Hinduism wouldn't count here. And so you evaluate these different claims, these sort of Judeo-Christian, for the most part, claims. And then you say Christianity is the most likely amongst them. Well, then I use evidence and reason to get to that point and use Pascal's wager to get the rest of the way over the hump. So his dichotomy though is interesting. He, he offers what he considers a true dichotomy, which is the cruelest God imaginable versus all other forms of theism. And I just want to point out before I move on to my third objection, that what Drew's doing is he's actually sort of granting Pascal's wager in one sense, because he's, he just granted theism. And now he's trying to use the wager to decide which version of theism to believe in. And I'm like, Hey, cool, man, you're, you're better than atheism now. You know, you're at least pursuing God. I just think that you've misunderstood the wager and you haven't brought in evidence or reason to decide amongst different possible theistic views. So then here's the third, um, third objection or third problem I have with Drew's presentation here. Um, he falsely accuses Pascal's wager of being arbitrary and he comes up with a solution that's arbitrary right? Because he's like, hey, it's arbitrary to pick Christianity versus versus atheism. And I tried to show how it cannot be arbitrary to do that. His solution is I'll arbitrarily make up a God who's the cruelest possible God, and then just tell you to believe that. But that sounds completely arbitrary. Um, so if, if Pascal's wager is, you know, whatever claim promises the most, you should believe it. Okay, then that works. He can do that. But that's not the wager. So, so then his thing becomes arbitrary. How do I escape then the cruelest God imaginable? I just recognize that it's arbitrary. Um, this is actually an old objection to Pascal's wager called Pascal's mugging or Pascal's mugger. It's the idea that someone comes up to Pascal on the street and they're like, give me your wallet. Uh, and then and the, Pascal's like, no. And he says, well, give me your wallet and I'll kill you if you don't. But the guy has no weapons or anything. And Pascal's like, no. And then he says, okay, I'll, I'll kill you. And if you do give me your wallet, I'll give you a million dollars. And Pascal goes, wait a minute. Ooh, boy, there's a risk reward assessment here. But Pascal can easily ignore the, the mugger because he's just making stuff up. He's clearly making stuff up. Why? Because evidence does matter. 
And when you have an arbitrary claim, you can, you can have a strike against believing that claim, not just a risk-reward assessment. There's more than the risk-reward assessment. That's what we're saying. For Christianity, it has something over the cruelest God imaginable because it has historical verification. It has a revelatory nature like prophecy, the Bible. Um, it has the testimony of so many people who at least claim they've found God through Christ. And, and it was obviously not made up on the spot. So I can already dismiss the cruelest God imaginable. Christianity is better supported than the cruelest God imaginable. So Pascal's wager has me going for Christianity in that case. And not to mention, and this is something Cam told when we were talking about this earlier. Uh, he was like, yeah, the cruelest God imaginable would actually just send everyone to hell. Like there would be no heaven if he was the cruelest God imaginable. So, so even, you know, on the idea of the cruelest God, cruelest God imaginable, I would just reject it. I'd be like, well, I get nothing for worshiping that God. So I may as well reject that idea. So um, to defeat Pascal's wager, Drew offers theism, but it's an arbitrary theism. So what he did was he accepted it in a sense. Uh, in some sense, it seems like he actually embraced Pascal's wager. Um, so this, this just assumes that the only thing going on with Pascal's wager is a risk-reward assessment with zero concern for the chance that the, that the scenario we're evaluating is actually true. That's why he can just come up with something off the top of his head. Christians have evidence it's not just arbitrary. Christianity is the, if, if, even if you, because I feel it's true. I feel Christianity is proven true, but I want to meet you where you're at. You think it seems like the most likely of the religions, but you're not sure. Well, you have a good reason to trust it anyways, because of the risk reward thing that's going on. So yeah, that, that's, that's a pretty big deal. There's, there's more to talk about there, but I think I'll, I'll jump over to all of us and then we can dialogue a bit. Yeah, I've like got Braxton's something to say on the first. point that you just... <laughs> Well, it'd be terrible to let a good prediction go to waste, right? So um, I think uh, what on that last point you were making, um, there's an obvious problem with this that you hit on, and it struck me the same way, that is that if, if it's a God I created specifically to be the cruelest God imaginable, kind of like you said it was arbitrary, then I would, one, already have knowledge that I invented this God, right? And thus would not have a reason to worship it. Or two... I'm guessing and hoping that this God I've contrived will happen to be real when no one else has ever worshipped him to my knowledge. And this is exactly the opposite of what we're trying to do, because now the likelihood that I've landed on the actual God is really, really low because I've just made him up and nobody worships him. So it actually works in the opposite direction of the wager, just on the face of it. And the only other, other thing I would want to say about I, I just um, I think you made a really valuable point about how uh, what we see a lot of times and, and i love my atheist audience because there are some really sharp thinkers there that i communicate with and i really appreciate that and, and not all of them are the way that, that certain certain people are that are known for this but but i think that, that that's a commonality is that christian people doubt christianity and then they go straight for atheism in, in not in all cases and, and if the shoe doesn't fit don't wear it but it does happen and also this desire for 100% certainty. So I, those are some things I took away that I thought were really valuable there. Hmm. Nice. Yeah, so uh, piggybacking off of you mentioning Michael Rota, I've interviewed him on my podcast. We did like a two-parter series on that, the, on, on Pascal's Wager in his book and taking Pascal's Wager and how he develops it further, which yeah. is really interesting to think about, actually. And the way that he... Uh, advances the discussion is really interesting. I know that some philosophers disagree and stuff, but anyways, I wanted to talk about one thing that you didn't mention, which was that Drew and a lot of skeptics and even some Christians think that the past, that Pascal's wager is like 
immoral in some sense because really you're just worried about your own self-interest you're just trying to like get into heaven and avoid hell and that seems like you're just only interested in yourself it's all about you and so dr michael rota calls this the avarice objection to pascal's wager avarice is just like another word for greed and so in his book taking pascal's wager actually i have a quote here he says quote the avarice objection hits hardest against a version of the wager of the wager that makes one's own self-interest the sole motivating factor. But the wagerer need not be motivated merely or even mainly by self-interest. One might choose to commit to God, commit to God largely because one wants to avoid the risk of disappointing God or because one fervently desires to grow morally and therefore wants to live a life maximally open to the possibility of divine aid, or even because one might well have a moral duty to live a devout life. So one could easily be motivated to commit to God, not because out of self-interest, but because of concern for others or out of respect for a possible moral duty. And that's the end of the quote. So I just wanted to point out that, I mean, a lot of these objections that you see from online internet skeptics have been dealt with in the literature and in books, like over and over and over. And so it's it's really odd that the, well, not all of them, right? We're not, I don't want to paint with too broad of a, uh, of a brush here because it doesn't apply to every internet skeptic. Some internet atheists are very, very serious philosophically, so I don't want to, to paint with too broad a brush here. But I think that what was really apparent in this one was Drew even mentions where he got this objection to Pascal's wager from, which is a guy named Cosmological. He even linked his video there, and I watched the video. And yeah, it was basically like the same exact objection that Drew gave. But... I don't know if if his source, if Drew is only using sources from other atheists and not really looking at the good sources where people are defending these in the literature today, contemporary philosophy in peer-reviewed academic journals, like if if you're going to YouTube instead of looking at the actual experts, there's something wrong with that. I don't know. Yeah, it's just, I just would encourage an atheist, like if if you hear an argument for Christianity and you think that is so obviously dumb and so childish and like a kindergartner would know better then i just would ask you to pause for a second and and think maybe you haven't heard the, a thoughtful understanding of it um you know just continue to dig a little bit more i mean as i was listening i listened to even drew i listened to him say it over and over again this section you know because i want to make sure i understand him rightly i even sent him a message like asking hey man can i get clarity on what you said here i want to make sure i understand you properly i don't want to misrepresent him we're trying to represent him accurately and just show that we think he's legitimately wrong but uh but it's not to characterize him like a straw man yeah so uh, any other thoughts all right well we're gonna we're gonna go to the next one um, but i will say this is i'm not a christian because of pascal's wager but i do think a thoughtful understanding of it can help people on their journey because uh, it, it breaks them away from this view like oh i have to have 100 percent certainty before i can choose to have trust in god and that's a, a really because in a sense you're, you're saying you're gonna you're gonna choose the alternative even though you're what 90% sure Christianity is true, but you're going to choose to do the opposite. That, that doesn't make any sense. Um, and then the risk reward thing I, I did think pushes it an... to the point where you have, even if you have a low percentage of Christianity being true, there's a reason to, to, uh, to move in directions towards God, hoping that you can find more truth there. Yeah. I did remember just, uh, an analogy that Dr. Rhoda gives in, in, I don't know if it's in the book or he mentioned it on the podcast, but I think he probably does mention it in the book, but the analogy that he gives is, Suppose that you're like walking down your street, you look at one of the houses through the fence and you, you can see a pool in this guy's backyard and it looks like maybe there's like a kid 
in the pool that might be drowning. You don't know if it's a kid or if it's just like something floating in the pool. You know, you don't necessarily have the belief that a kid is drowning there. Maybe you're like 50-50. But nevertheless, what he says, what he argues, is that you should act and commit to like go and save the child because there's so much at stake. So I think that's a really interesting analogy to start get you to think, to really think about Pascal's wager, at least this updated version. And if you can get, if you have enough evidence where you're like 50-50 because there is so much at stake, maybe it's worth like really looking into it, really committing to this at least for a little while and just see where that gets you because there is so much at stake. I think that's uh, an interesting analogy. Yeah, yeah, I think that's interesting too. Um, all right, well, we're going to jump to the next one. This is the third objection, and uh, John's taking this one, and he wanted to take it in individual clips. So we're going to play, it'll, we're playing everything, you know, that Drew said from start to finish. We're just playing it in individual clips because he wanted to kind of pause him and address certain things as they were going. So here we go. Why did God create animals with the ability to feel pain? This question delves into a bit of theology that all Abrahamics share. God made animals with pain receptors. That was my bad okay. editing there. That it so, just kind of like happened. No, no. God made animals with pain That's receptors. Because, yeah, no. And he actually says that this falls into a bit of theology that all of the Abrahamic religions share, that God made animals with pain receptors. Now, that's not a theology that all religions share, right? Of course, it's not like it says in the beginning, God created animals with pain receptors, right? That's a scientific observation. It's not a theological observation. So um, I just thought, I mean, right away, I was like, right off the bat, you, I know, per usual. So anyways, um, but we can go ahead and let that slide. Go ahead and keep it going. All right. So many animals, especially the kinds we eat the most, can feel physical pain in exactly the same way as humans. Many of those animals can and do suffer psychological trauma just like humans as well. Yet, God not only condones people killing and eating animals, but he created animals with the capacity to suffer while already knowing full well that they would. Okay, so um, right there... Um, and so, by the way, if you watch my videos, you know, I always usually like play clips and then I respond. So that's why I was thinking that we were going to run it that way. So anyways, but um, right there, he so he mentions a couple of things. The first thing he mentions is that um, let's see, because I wrote it down here so I don't misquote him. Um, he says that these animals feel pain in exactly the same way as humans. Now, right off the bat, that just sounds wrong to me. Right. So um, first off, in order for them to um, feel pain in the exact same way that we do, they'd have to experience pain, not just physically, but emotionally as well for it to be a proper relation. Right. And so to me, it's obviously um, even scientifically, it's not clear that they do. And basic observations at least tell me that most likely they don't experience the emotional pain that we do. Um, so that's the first thing. Um, second thing I want to say about that is. Um, this is kind of assumed within his thing that pain is always bad and there's no need for it. So therefore, God could have created them without pain receptors. Right. Um, an obvious problem with that to me, like right off the bat, is that pain is what helps us survive. So if there's like, um, say, a volcano erupts and like, you know, we're walking over or even a, an animal, let's take an animal, animals walking over to like this molten lava and the closer it gets, it starts feeling pain. That pain's an indication that it needs to avoid that so that way it could survive. So I'd say that if um, Drew is really concerned about um, animal well-being, then he should be happy that they do have pain receptors so that way that most of them won't go extinct. So that's what I'd say to that point. And um, when it comes to the other point that he had about psychological trauma, now this one to me was particularly interesting when I first heard it. And by the way, I just watched the, his video today and then so, and I just jotted down a couple notes in my head. But um, 
one thing about the psychological trauma, um, he says that most of these animals can and do suffer psychological trauma, just as hu human beings do as well, or humans do as well. Now, my first thought is, why is that relevant, right? Think about it, psychological trauma, okay? So he says, he uses this as a way to talk about humans, um, God creating these, um, these animals with pain and is eating them, right? Um, but unless people eat animals while they're alive and the animals don't, you know, they continue to live after they've been eaten, then I don't see how psychological trauma is related to that problem, right? To us eating these animals, right? Um, because how much psychological trauma does a dead person experience? None. And how much psychological trauma does an an a dead animal experience? Obviously none. So psychological trauma refers to people that are alive, not people that are dead or things that are alive, it's the, or animals that are alive, whatever you want to say, not animals that are dead. Okay. Um, so, but if we can, if we just punt that aside, so let's just say that, um, you know, maybe there's something I missed. Um, we punt that aside. Um, and let's say that this is just referring to the threat of being eaten. Okay. Um, so if he is appealing to the the psychological trauma that comes from the threat of being eaten, um, well, psychological trauma actually refers to the stress that's greater than the ability to cope with the emotions that came with the experience that came from the experience. So what would these emotions be? in these animals like so what where's this trauma coming because that's what we're dealing with as humans right um so if we are identical to humans in our psychology as he seems that that seems to necessitate from his arguments then why is it that um they don't suffer emotionally most likely in the same way that we do right um, what are these emotions that the animal can't cope with and so in order for um, them to experience psychological trauma in the exact same way that humans do, then um, their psychological makeup needs to be the same as it is for humans, right? And which is obviously false. Um, so if you think about um, for humans, what is like one of the hardest possible things, the thing that would probably send us through emotional trauma the most would probably be something like um, a mother um, losing the child, right? Um, a baby being killed or something in front of the mother. Now that would cause psychological trauma in humans, right? But um, if you guys remember a little bit while back on the in the Smithsonian Zoo, um, they actually had a sloth bear who was delivering cubs and um, everybody was gathered around. They were all excited. Right. And in the middle of the delivery, um, one of you know, once she delivered one of the cubs, she goes down and licks the cub and people are like, oh, you know, but then she actually ate the cub in front of everybody and everybody's all flipping out. Right. They're like, oh, my goodness. Right. <laughs> so what's what's crazy about this is that um, this isn't just true of just like, you know, this sloth bear or something like that, but also like fish and chickens and almost every primate species does this, including chimpanzees. They will they'll also eat and kill their young. So they do this and then they just keep it moving. Right. So obviously, does that sound like the same psychological trauma that we go through as humans if we lost our kid, right? Obviously not, you know, because with humans, it affects our daily lives. With the animal, it clearly doesn't. At least we can't tell that it does. We don't have a way of telling that they're going suffering emotionally throughout each and every day, right? Um, but even if I'm, if, if I'm wrong about this, right, it's still a red herring, um, you know what I mean? Because a dead fish can't experience anything, let alone psychological trauma. Cool. And we can right. keep going. I'm gonna play the next clip. Just a reminder, though, for the time sake, because we got four more clips for you, so can't take too long on them. Sorry, John. Oh yeah. Just oh no. Yeah. These are six minutes in so far. All right. Then, okay, yeah, for a problem. long period in history, he demanded humans to slaughter and sacrifice animals to him, just because he enjoyed the act of devotion. 
Okay, and then obviously, just real quick, anybody that's ever read the Bible knows that that's just false, right? Um, and so out of charity, I'm just going to assume that it's just ignorance here where he just, you know, isn't familiar with the Bible. But in the Old Testament, the reason why people sacrificed animals was to atone for the things that they did wrong. Um, that was the purpose of it. And so this was an act of mercy on God's part. And so it's not because he enjoyed it, as Drew said. And we can keep going, Mike. All right. Of course, there's another explanation for this issue. Maybe God had nothing to do with the formation of the food chain, and humans just made up a myth that morally justified killing animals so they could keep doing it without internal moral conflict. Whether you're a believer in the Abrahamic God or not, you probably already know that people in many religions outside of yours tend to have doctrine that morally justifies actions which seem immoral but allow that group to better survive or propagate. Yeah. Um, and so, okay. So for there, um, I think you skipped a clip, Mike, but that's okay. Oh, I, um, I can, we can just skip that. So I'd rather not do that. Let me, let me, okay. let me just take a second and see if I, yeah. if I can pull it up for us. I think that everybody would probably okay. rather take a moment and be able to hear that clip and let you respond in order. So just a moment. Okay. I'm sorry, everybody. That's just me being yeah, no problem. A, a technical train wreck. Um, well, this is a completely new system for you, so I think you're doing pretty good. Yeah, so this far. is my first yeah. time using a new software, so I'm trying. We did test it a lot, but uh, still. Yeah, we did a lot of tests. We did a couple of tests last week and then earlier this week. So Mike is definitely trying to do a good job here. Okay, quick, we're going to come so. back to that last clip I just played in a moment. Um, I got your other clip just loaded uh, here. Let me play it. Yep. With the uh -oh, audio. No sound. <laughs> this direct encouragement of the suffering of the innocent is entirely inconsistent with a tri-omni nature. If God couldn't create a food cycle for all creatures that didn't include suffering, then he isn't omnipotent. If he didn't know the system would lead to suffering, he isn't omniscient. Now, if he could have done better, if he could have made a food cycle that didn't promote suffering but chose not to, he's not only lacking in omnibenevolence, but I would argue he's a sadist. Yeah. So yeah, pretty strong words right there. Right. So, all right. So first off, um, this is what, what kind of reveals to me more that Drew probably isn't familiar with the, the biblical literature, because it seems to ignore the fact that God did create a food cycle that didn't include suffering. Right. Um, we all know this. And then the fall happened. And then that's what changed the world. The world was initially created with harmony. And so um, in Genesis one, actually, um, verse 28, um, start at 28 and we can go to 30. Um, actually, we can just start at 29, sorry. Um, it says, and God said, behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. Um, and then verse 30, and every, um, and every beast on the earth and to every bird of the heavens and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so, right? So initially, Yes, um, we, you know, we weren't we weren't set up to eat animals. Right. And so this is a result of the fall. Right. And so um, and also too, what I say really quick is that um, Drew seems to assume that the purpose of God creating life on Earth is for us to be pain free. But that's obviously not the reason why God created the pain or created the um, us on Earth. Right. Um, that is a good thing. But there's more important um, things that are more eternal as well, not just temporal and, you know, deeper and that sort of thing. But I'm trying not to take up too much time. Um, so the last point I just want to say real quick on that note is that um, 
Drew seems to, uh, I think like a lot of atheists tend to do this at least, is they try to assume that, or they seem to assume that this life is the only life. Um, but if you're gonna argue according to theology, then you also have to take eternity into the context and the equation as well. And because this world has fallen and broken, the next world will be pain-free. So that's something that I think he didn't consider. But if he's gonna argue against this theologically, then he has to take all of theology into account as well. Okay, mm -hmm. now that to the last question. point. All right. Um, here we go. Wait, uh, this is number five. Of course, there is another explanation for this issue. Maybe God had nothing to do with the formation of the food chain, and humans just made up a myth that morally justified killing animals so they could keep doing it without internal moral conflict. Whether you're a believer in the Abrahamic God or not, you probably already know that people in many religions outside of yours tend to have doctrine that morally justifies actions which seem immoral but allow that group to better survive or propagate. Yeah, so right here, I'd say, like, correct me if I'm wrong here, but isn't that Drew's view of morality, right? Because in other videos and stuff, Drew talks about the morality, how morality or um, morality has been explained by evolution, right? And so when he says that religious people made up things that allow the group to survive or propagate, that's exactly what morality is on his view, if I'm correct, right? And so if an evolution um, gives us morality to help us survive and propagate, would that be a bad thing? If not, then why is it a bad thing when it comes to religion, right? Um, and then some people might say, well, religion doesn't allow it. It doesn't help us, you know, survive and propagate. They'll say it's harmful. Well, if that's the case, then, then Drew would be wrong, right? When he talks about how these, um, these religious beliefs helped them to survive and propagate. Um, but if he's right, and that is the case, then we'd have to throw away the very morality that Drew had to use in order to make his entire video a moral video, right? This throws away his entire foundation for his arguments if he's going to throw that out the window. So um, that's what I say to that. Um, also, I'd say that, um, yeah, just a real quick note, because if religious people are making up excuses just to eat meat, then why is it that almost all non-religious people eat meat as well? What are their excuses then? Uh, what excuses are they making up since they don't have religious excuses now to do what's so obviously immoral as Drew seems to imply in that clip? Um, so um, I was going to I'll go ahead. No, I just, it just seems like, like it just seems like completely made yeah. up with no evidence whatsoever. People made that up so they can yeah. eat meat. Uh, anyway. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's, it's ridiculous. But also, too, it's like... Um, even if so, say if, you know, example for Christianity, if it did make up stuff in order to propagate and flourish and all, like you said, then Christianity would have been the world's worst religion of all time and would have died out a long time ago, right? Because Jesus tells you to pray for your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Um, Paul says, um, you know, don't curse them. And Peter, you know, first Peter, it says, um, it says to this, you were called because Christ suffered for you, leaving an example that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to who judges justly. And then he's talking about how we need to respond to people that harm us, right? So if Christianity really was like um, all these views and beliefs came because we're trying to, you know, um, survive and propagate, then Christianity, Christianity be, would Christianity would be the world's worst religion in that regard, and it would have died out a long time ago. Uh, which is why we are like pacifists and stuff. You know, Christianity or the early Christians seem like pacifists because we don't read about them hurting anybody else or retaliating for at least you know, three hundred years after Christ. You know, so anyways, uh, that's the last point I had. All right. Well, there's one little clip left here. If you are a believer yep. in this tri-omni God, maybe it's time to realize that believers before you likely made up these logically inconsistent ideas within your doctrine too.
And then I'd say, um, right back at you, buddy, because uh, I'd say that's the exact same thing with his views. He, he tries to separate religious beliefs as if this doesn't equally apply to his beliefs on religion, right? Why is it only a- applicable to my beliefs on religion? Because I'd say that he's doing the exact same thing in his way, and it's logically consistent and all the other charges that he listed there as well. So. Nice. Well, it. Um, yeah, you guys want to have anything you want to add just on the end there? Before we go to Cam's question? Um, I think that animal suffering is actually a really difficult problem for Christianity, well, for, for perfect being theism more specific. Well, I guess more generally, actually. But I don't know. I I think that it's a real serious problem that we need to take seriously. Why? And uh, Why do you say that? Do what? Cam, why do you say oh, that? Why, why, why do you say that? What? Uh-huh. Well, I think that there are proponents of the problem of evil, or at least uh, the atheistic arguments from evil that are formulated. I mean, I just uh, talked about one earlier today on my on my channel where we laid out a specific version of the problem of evil. And I think that can be seen more more poignantly when you talk about animal pain, because it does seem to involve unjustified pain and suffering, whether or not you want to call it suffering or pain or whatever it is, it's still a bad state of affairs. I think we are pretty much all agreed on that. If you're, you know, you're, you see your dog in pain, that's, that's still like a bad state of affairs. You'd rather that not happen. So the question is still like this pain and suffering, it does still seem to sort of conflict with theism. So all I'm saying is that I think we just need to take it seriously. Yeah. Yeah, I'd say to that, I'd say, uh, go ahead, John. uh, Oh, Oh, no, for I just said real quick. Um, right. Yeah. To that, I'd say exactly what I said in the first um, section as well, too. It's, it's anthropomorphic, actually, to assume that these animals are experiencing the emotional pain in the same way that we are. Right. And that the pain is not justified in a way, because I think that the pain receptors, like I said, the pain receptors that are in the animals is actually necessary for their survival as well. You know, and so um, if especially if they're not experiencing the emotional aspect behind the pain, then I wouldn't say that the pain is bad in that same way. So that's all I'd say to that. I, I think that one of the I think one of the most important points that John brought up is the idea that this isn't the end of the story on Christianity. And it is the end of the story on atheism. Uh, all the suffering that's going on, the problem is worse in one sense on atheism because it's a problem with no resolution, no solution and no change. Um, it also is a problem that doesn't make sense totally because all your irk against evil doesn't really seem to make any sense on atheism in the first place. So it's like, why do I have this problem? So I have a, I have a problem that I don't know where it comes from and I have no solution for it on atheism, at least from my perspective. But the thing that I think really matters is the problem of evil makes me think this can't be the full story. You know, if there's a God, he's got to do something about all this stuff. And on and in Christianity, yeah, of course he is going to do something about this. And there's a huge emphasis in this, in Christianity, that we don't find in other religions, actually. That we find the resolution, even with animals. The lion uh, lays down with the the lamb, you know, or the wolf and the lamb, excuse me. The wolf lays down with the lamb. That there's this, like, peace even amongst, the fu- in the future, even amongst animals. And that this is a problem that Christianity says is resolved um, in the fullness of the gospel of Christ. And I think that that means... There's a sense in which this makes me feel that uh, Christianity makes even more sense to my intuitions because of that. I think that um, Stephen Weikstra makes a point, and this uh, back out of all animal suffering, however you want to phrase that, like globally throughout history, if you take any one specific instance of animal suffering, um, 
we would not expect that we would be in a position to see overarching goods that might come out of that. Now, I can see how that might sound to like a cop out to some people, but uh, one of the examples that's given often is um, if I go and look in my backyard, I don't see any worms, but I wouldn't expect that I would be in a position to see the worms that are there just by looking out my backyard. And um, so, so, you know, there are certain things that we would expect to see. Uh, you know, I think the example that I've heard people give is if there was a second moon orbiting Earth right now, <laughs> we would expect to be able to see that, right? We would be justified in thinking, I don't think that's there. It should be visible to our instruments or to my field of vision, perhaps. But, um, but if, if we're talking about, like, are there worms in my backyard? Just because I don't see them glancing out my window doesn't mean they're not there. And when it comes to a single instance of animal suffering, uh, I don't know that there's not some overarching good that might be there in the butterfly effect 100 years from now. And so uh, uh, that's referred to as the noceum principle. You noceum, so they're not there. But, um, but I think it's a relevant thing to bring up. We don't know what uh, goods might come out of that. And you would have to be in a position to say something like, because I can't see the goods that might come out of a specific instance of animal suffering, there aren't any. And I don't think you're in a position to say that. Awesome. All right, well, yeah, we're gonna go I to think the... I would agree with that. Cool. We're going to go to the last question right now. This, this one comes uh, for Cam. And um, here's the clip. If God is omnipotent, he knows out of all the people he creates, who would choose to believe in him and follow him while on earth? He also supposedly doesn't want people to suffer and only wants people to believe in him and follow him. However, God allows people who choose him to suffer while on earth, and much worse, he creates people that he knows will not choose him while on earth, and those people end up suffering in hell. There's an inconsistency there. If he's actually omnibenevolent, why would he not exclusively create people who would choose to follow him if they were put on earth and then send them directly to heaven, skipping the suffering of earth entirely? If your answer to this question is along the lines of having free will and the capacity to suffer is better than lacking free will and not suffering, then you've just hurt the case for your doctrine. That answer implies that the people who would be created in heaven would not have free will, and that people in heaven right now don't have free will. If a life with free will and suffering is better than one without free will or suffering, then that means that earth must be better than heaven. So free will can't be the answer to this question. We once again face the problem of evil. If God couldn't exclusively create people in heaven, he isn't omnipotent. If he didn't know his creation of humans on earth would lead to suffering, he isn't omniscient. If he could create people in heaven but won't, he isn't omnibenevolent. As always, though, there is another option. Maybe this idea of God is simply nonsensical. The truth is, the concept of a tri-omni-god falls apart immediately under anything more than momentary consideration. All right, so I wanted to make sure that that last part was in there. I'm going to talk about that right at the end of this. But so real quick, I think that what we can see here is that three out of four of these questions are really just versions of the problem of evil. The first one, we're talking about literature and how the writing of the Bible and different interpretations can lead to one type of suffering. And then in the third one, we're talking, we're really focusing in on animal suffering. And then this last one, we're looking at suffering here on earth. Why not? why didn't God just sort of create everyone in heaven? So really what we're doing is we're just looking at three different versions of the problem of evil. And you can separate these into four different questions or really three different questions because we're just talking about three right now. 
But I think it's important to note that three out of the four, we can just sort of be lumped together. Another thing I like to point out on my channel a lot is that questions are not arguments. A lot of times you'll see atheists ask questions like, why didn't God do it this way? Why is this here? Why did the Holocaust happen? And these questions are often misinterpreted, misinterpreted as arguments, when in reality, questions are not arguments. Just asking a question, why didn't God prevent this, is not an argument that God doesn't exist. It doesn't follow at all. And so you've actually got to put it in like a structured argument. I think he tries, he at least attempts to do that in this one. And so we're going to look a little bit more closely here. But I've got a video on my channel where I basically answer this question, why didn't God just sort of start everyone out in heaven? And so the basic overall goal of my response in that video was to identify different goods that can only be achieved in a world that basically starts out with non-heaven. And so I'm just going to give sort of three examples that are given in the literature and discussed by philosophers of goods that mean that it's better to have sort of an earth-heaven combination rather than just like heaven alone. So the first example of one of these goods is uh, love. And so basically being able to choose to enter into heaven is a great good. It's great to have that option to choose to enter into heaven. And so you can think about it like this. So God is the opportunity to enter into a loving relationship with him rather than just like starting us out in heaven where we have no option but to love him. And so that option is just uh, in itself a great good. And you can think about it like if, suppose a, a mad scientist gave you like a love potion and they were like, you know, you can use this potion and make, make anyone that you come in contact with fall in love with you. And I think most of us just thinking about it, you probably, I mean, it might be fun to like think about and fantasize about, but it's not something that you would actually want to use. You wouldn't want to actually force someone to fall in love with you. Is that real love? So that's the first point is that the option of being able to choose heaven is a great good. And you can't have that option if you just sort of start everyone out in heaven. The second example of a good that you can have when you have earth and heaven is the atoning work that Jesus did on the cross. And uh, there's a Christian philosopher, his name is Alvin Plantinga. He has a, a theodicy, which is a reason that God would have to, uh, to allow suffering on earth. It's a theodicy that's a really, really long name. It's called supralapsarianism. It's like the longest name that I've ever come across. Supralapsarianism. But the basic idea is that the incarnation and the atonement, what Jesus did on the cross, where he basically took our sins and, and basically made us right with God, what he did on the cross is one of the most incredible acts of love that we can even imagine. Okay, right? Sacrificing yourself for like your family or your friends or people who love you, that's a really great thing to do. But sacrificing yourself for people that hate you and want nothing to do with you and are sinning against you, like that act of love is, it's, it's difficult to think, even just imagine a greater act of love than that. And so basically what we have in our world where we have earth and heaven, that combination is we have that world where Jesus gave himself and sacrificed himself for us. And that is only possible in a world that has sin. All right. So the third example, and I'll uh, quickly cl close this down, is uh, what's called soul building. And this is my favorite theodicy. I talk about this a lot on my channel. Soul building is basically where you're put in a position where you can suffer or go through some kind of uh, suffering and that circumstance that situation provides the opportunity to grow your character in certain ways and so i'm a big marvel guy i love watching the marvel movies and the first thor movie 
Thor was basically being an arrogant jerk and he got banished to earth. And so he was cut off from communication from his, uh, from his dad, his family, from everybody. And he was basically made mortal. So he underwent a lot of suffering. He was forced to go through suffering, but that suffering helped him realize sort of what we, he was taking for granted. And so suffering made him a better person. And eventually he was worthy to pick up his hammer and he beat all the bad guys. And so now obviously this is a movie, but there's a reason that writers tell these kinds of stories. It's because I think that acts of virtue through pain and suffering sort of resonate with us on a very deep level. But notice that these types of goods where we're, we're uh, sacrifice, sacrifice, courage, compassion, forgiveness, these types of goods are only possible in a world that has suffering. And so in response to this, Drew might say that this means that the earth is better than heaven. He even says that about free will. But I think that's actually a non sequitur. It doesn't logically follow at all. Just because some goods are only possible through suffering, that doesn't mean that all goods are possible through, are only possible through suffering. And so a world that has heaven and earth, the combination basically has the best of both uh, the best of both worlds. And so basically what I've done is I've sketched three different rear why God would create a world that has both. Another great one that you can look up if you're interested is called the Connection Building Theodicy by Robin Collins. And he's actually mainly known for his work on fine tuning. But the basic idea is that virtuous responses to evil create valuable connections between people. So you build relationships with people and these relationships can continue to grow in value over time. And it's only those uh, through suffering where those connections are really built. And it's uh, it's sort of an infinite, another one of these, uh, Mike, these infinite value situation. Anyways, it's a really interesting idea. If you want to check that out, check out Robin Collins' work. Uh, last thing to note here is that when he says, maybe this idea of God, and he actually did this throughout pretty much the entire video where he's like, here's the question. And, he, and he'll give like the, if God did this, then he's not omniscient, blah, blah, blah. And then he'll say, well, here's an option or here's another alternative or here's an easy explanation. But the point is that easy explanations are not necessarily good explanations. So you can have an easy explanation of why the dishes are in your sink. And you can say, well, the easy explanation is that aliens put them there. But that's not a good explanation. Like, it's not enough to just come up with some explanation that you can think up off the top of your head, which is, I think, what mostly he's doing here is he's just thinking up an easy explanation rather than doing the hard work of giving a good explanation. And so you can say that an omni-god falls apart immediately under anything more than momentary consideration, but I would just say do more than a momentary consideration. Nice. <laughs> That's a good point, man. I, I think that, um, I well, before I give, I want to give some overall comments about just Drew's video and sort of the flavor of it, but do you guys have anything you want to add or comment on as far as what Cam had to share? I'm good, John. I think that's a no. It was just that good, man. We just got nothing to say. What was it? <laughs> oh, we, what, did you say it something was... to me? I'm sorry. I hit the button. What was no, it? No, no. I was just giving you guys a chance to share anything? something. Oh. Uh, did you want to disagree I don't with think me? So. I'd say... Right, John? Um... John and Cam disagree all the time in our private <laughs> yeah. chats. So I'm always yeah, we waiting. disagree a lot. <laughs> I'm always waiting for something. <laughs> well, I think that's just because, yeah, because Cameron's just usually wrong. You know what I mean? So it's okay, though. You know, I, I'm working on guys. He, he's going to get there. Just be patient with them. Christ was patient with us. Be patient. Okay? Be patient. <laughs> well, um, <laughs> fruit of the spirit. Okay, so the spirit. I, I think we've given some some thoughtful responses. And I, I, th I want to point out, like, we're trying to 
understand Drew's points accurately. And while we disagree and we even think that there are huge consequences for the kind of error that he's leading people to, we're still trying, we're trying to be charitable. We're trying to be loving. We're trying to build bridges here and not burn them. Um, but I want to mention something, which is Drew's like journey into atheism. Um, it sounds like someone's like washing their hands in the background. Is that, <laughs> what is oh, that? that may, yeah. It's anyway, I won't worry. I just know none of us is going to the bathroom, so don't worry about the noises, guys. Um, but Drew's journey into atheism, I think he's putting potentially on display for us his journey into atheism, which was um, coming up with a series of tough questions pointed at Christianity. But the questions were generally um, maybe not thought through for, for very long. And they're dealt, they're, they're, you know, pointed at a shallow understanding of Christian truth and sort of a paper mache version of God. And so question after question after question without answers does lead someone towards atheism but the answers are there and if people will pursue them and will care enough and maybe that's what pascal's wager is saying is like hey care enough to pursue those things then i would just say like you know dear atheist like there's, there's good answers to your questions maybe maybe i can't answer every question but most of them we can i think and that's pretty significant uh christianity shows itself to be true it's psychologically powerful to just ask question after question but it's not intellectually wise to take pride in mere questions as you know cam likes to say uh, questions are not arguments so questions might make you an atheist but i think answers will make you a christian um i want to tell you guys these guys right here i love these guys these are my friends they're my buddies uh all three of them and we chat all the time uh, on almost a daily basis we just connect with each other and chat and i really enjoy that fellowship but the reason why i put them in front of you here today is because i want you to consider subscribing to their content. And you know if you should, because as John talks, as Cam talks, as Braxton talks, you're like, boy, I, I get when this guy talks, I get it. it, it helps me. His way of processing, his way of communicating helps me. Well, then you wanna to subscribe to their channels down below and help us to, uh, as David Wood said, build a apologetic empire on <laughs> on YouTube, which is really our goal. We wanna represent Christ and make his, uh, make his name known, so. You guys have anything you want to add before we actually sign off? I'm not going to do Q&A because we're already like an hour and 13 minutes into the video. Just thank you, I Mike. can hang around say, for um, Thanks for having us on, of course. Yeah, yeah. Thanks so much, man, for having us on. And um, yeah, we always too like um, we do these responses and stuff too, not to try to pull the person down. That's never the goal, but it's to try to open up the conversation so other people can see that there are responses to these answers. And a lot of the times, some of these people are not very good sources when you're learning about Christianity and the arguments of Christianity and the responses to Christianity in the Bible. Most of the time, I'd say that um, you know um, these a lot of these people that are really popular YouTubers aren't taking seriously any of the literature on the arguments or the Bible or anything like that. And so because of that, I think it warrants a response. Um, despite how large their channels are too, um, people tend to think that they're just right, but um, objective facts say otherwise. So videos like this help to pull that out. So, but yeah, thanks for having me. Yeah, right on. Anybody else? Yeah, I just, uh, I really appreciate you having us on. I think this is really important, the stuff that we're doing here and having having voices that are sort of combating these atheist ideas. I think it's really important. I think that we need to do more of it and we need to also do more collaborative stuff like this. We need to work together. And like like uh, David Wood is trying to do is, is build this apologetic empire. I think that we need to do that. We don't need to to view our fellow apologists as, as a competition. I think that we need to, you know, sort of band together and uh, and take this head on, and and do more collaborative stuff, collaborative yeah. work like this. So 
I think it's really important. I really appreciate all the stuff that you do. Thanks. Thanks, Mike, for having us on again. And yeah, I think that YouTube is a mission field that is somewhat uncharted. And um, the, the message that I would have to to believers out there is to take it seriously and to churches to take it seriously. And um, and and to atheists out there, I agree with what my brothers here have said. We there's no ill will or animosity. I love and pray over the people that I respond to. And whether you think that's real or not, it shows my affection, our affection for you. And um, so, but uh, for our purposes here, thank you, Mike. This has been a lot of fun and I think it's valuable. Yeah, well, thank you guys for making the time. And uh, if, if, if this video does well, then it helps us to know to do this kind of thing more often. And uh, we will definitely consider it. In the meantime, uh, I'm live every Tuesday at 5 p.m. Pacific Standard Time dealing with theology and apologetics. Um, the way these guys' channels are probably different than mine is I do a lot more Bible study stuff than they do, but we uh, we all do cover apologetics from different angles, and um, yeah. So Which thanks we so all much. Watch, by the way. <laughs> Which what? I said but we all watch your videos. By the way. Oh, that's so sweet. So <laughs> all right, and likewise, I watch your guys' stuff. So. All right, have a great night. Thanks for joining me. I'm so sorry for those who asked questions and we didn't get to them. I don't want this video to be two hours long. It's going to have a lot, uh, a lot fewer people clicking on it in the future if I make it that long right now. And I want it to reach people and make a difference in the world. So we will get to your questions uh, next time around. God bless you.